Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Aaron Bartles, the author of The Girl Who Could Breathe Underwater. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, just to start off uh, right from the beginning, give me your elevator pitch for what this book is all about. Okay. Everybody always wants that, and I'm, I'm mm. always a little stumbly over it. Um, so this book is the story of a, a woman named Kendra Brennan, who has um, spent a lot of time every, every summer of her life, actually, uh, on a lake uh, with her grandfather in his cabin. And he's passed on, and the cabin is now passed to her. And um, she's going to be going back up to that lake because um, she's an author who wrote her first book. It was quite successful, but she got a letter from a very disappointed reader, uh, an anonymous one who accused her of um, getting the story wrong because this reader clearly realized that it was based on some real life things that happened to her. And um, the, the, reader accuses her of getting things wrong, of taking the wrong person's side in the story and of using people. And this letter has Kendra so um, tied up inside of wondering, did she get the story wrong? Can she trust her memory of those events that she feels like she's so stuck she can't write her next book, which is contracted and she has a deadline. And so she's decided she's going back up to this lake and she's going to be living there in that cabin that she now has. And she's going to try to figure out who who's right who's wrong and finish her book up there but what she finds when she goes up is that um the truth is more complex than she might have realized in the way that a lot of things that we go through as children when we become adults we realize there were there were other factors involved um i recently realized that this is kind of like when you when you hear a song and you know a song as a child and then you you become an adult and you realize oh I've been singing this wrong the entire time. Mm -hmm. I've gotten the lyrics wrong. And I think we've all had that experience of just figuring out, I don't have it quite right. And so that's kind of what the book is about. She's going to be um, confronting the person she based her antagonist on. She's going to be um, visiting uh, with her mentor, a writer who lives on the lake who had mentored her. And she's going to be dealing with family things and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And she's going to have an unexpected guest, which is always fun. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a great way of, of talking about that book without actually revealing anything. I know. Uh, I have <laughs> I to say, yes, I have to say that was one of the hardest things when I was, when I was writing my review of the book, because I didn't want to give too much away. I know. Maybe you want to get a little, a little bit of it, but since, because all of these things are so tied in together it's one of the things you do so well in the novel is that everything i don't want to say everything is important but all of these elements are important in their own ways and the way that they weave in in and overlap with one another uh it, it really makes it hard to talk about the story without talking about the whole story yeah and uh, i do appreciate your attempt to do that i think you did it very well by focusing just on the very beginning of the book yes and actually we're going to do that for the for the this interview as well so i'm, I'm gonna for the readers and my listeners i'm gonna give you the guys the first couple of lines of this book it's an just immediately sucks you in this is a line i read i read this line and i went i don't have time to read this book right now i need to set this down and and carve out a couple of hours to make sure that i have time to fully get into this book so and here here's the lines the summer you chopped off all your hair 
I asked your dad what the point of being a novelist was. He said it was to tell the truth. That it, it's such a, I'm hooked immediately. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. That's wonderful to hear. And I know that, that, yes, <laughs> I know there are some stories that come, you know, fully fleshed out. Some stories start with the first line. Did the writing start with that line for you? Um, actually, no, it didn't because the the book was not originally written in that format. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I attempted to write the story, it was in third person. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't until I switched to first person and then also decided that the first person narrator would be addressing another character in the story that that line really came to be. And I think that once I had that uh, format, that everything fell into place yeah. and it did feel fully formed. It, that, that's interesting because it really, it would be such a different story if it was written yeah. in <laughs> it third was person. A story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because a lot of the hook of a lot of the hook of it for me was the way in which you used the literary style to mirror um, a lot of a lot of what the book was was talking about thematically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like right here in this first sentence, and you wouldn't have this if it was if it was written in third person. Uh, you you have this immediate mystery: who is who is this you? that yeah. that uh, she's writing to and this is something that you persist with throughout the entire book so now knowing that you originally wrote it in third person then went back and, and re- rewrote it um i really have to commend you and your editors for <laughs> being able to to do that well because i feel like if i was writing a story like that i would either forget to reference it as i was writing it part of the way through okay. i would just you know i would just forget that was a device i was using uh, or I would use it way too often. Um, yeah, so, there's a balance to strike. Yeah. How did how do you feel like you found that balance? You, was it because you were going back and rewriting it in that style? You could maybe a little more uh, determine when you wanted to be referential like that. Well, I guess I guess it. Um, I don't know if I I really thought that deeply about it. I chose mm-hmm. the 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 construct. And I think because when we go through experiences in our lives with people who, who make a real big impact mm-hmm. in our lives, whether it's, you know, a childhood best friend or a teacher or a parent or somebody, um, they're kind of always in your head in some way, even if you haven't seen them in a long time. Um, and so it felt like talking to, you know, just talking to the friend that you hadn't talked to in a while, but it's one of those friends that you can just pick up with where you left off and you don't have to explain things. And that was one of the things I, I really, I really liked reading in your review was the idea that you as a reader are not privy to certain things that uh, Kendra and the person she's talking to all already know. So there's a lot of things that Kendra doesn't say because why would she say it to this other person this other person already knows it and and that's the the balance of exposition in a in a first actually in any book I think I think you know as a reader when you run into a section where the author just had to dump a lot of information on you and if it's not artfully done it it feels very fake but of course this uh, this uh narrator wouldn't say certain things because she knows the person she's talking to already knows them and so there's a lot of keeping back information and I think that that came kind of naturally to me 
um, as a writer, I like keeping back information and I like making readers work harder because when I'm a reader, that's how I like to read. I like it when I have to be involved in interpreting a story. I don't like it when an author tells me what to think about everything. Yeah, and I think that concept of you, you know, being that second person, even as the reader, you can both be like, I don't know this information. This is being addressed to someone else. But then you're also imagining what if I am that person? If I was mm. that person, who would I be reflected in the, you know, in, in the book? So as they're trying to solve the mystery, it does kind of draw the reader into the story to yeah, feel like they're I, a part I'm of glad, it. I'm glad to hear that because I know that at first it can feel off-putting. Like it's a little <laughs> bit of a strange uh, way to tell a story. Um, and I know it takes a little bit of getting used to being like sort of addressed by the narrator. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last part from that first sentence is we, we, we sort of gather that the novel's theme is going to be about how fiction is used to tell the truth. Mm. Uh, now, I, I want to get to specifics on that later in the podcast, but in general, can you explain why that was an important theme for you to explore? Um, I think in general, the, the, the things I'd like to write about are very, um, the real life things. I, I enjoy experiencing stories that are disconnected from real life or fantastical or some amazing adventure. But um, the reason I write is to write through um, experiences, feelings, thoughts, questions that I have, things that I'm interested in. Um, so for me, it's, it's important to talk about, you know, what is your experience of life? And I didn't really think about this, but in our day, there's so little being able to trust that what you read is truth, that what you hear is truth, that what you're seeing on social media is actually truth. And from whose perspective is it truth? Um, And so I think that it's a, it's a question that we deal with on a daily basis, even if we don't really think about it. Um, we have to decide what to believe about things we read and things we experience and what other people tell us. And it's a fundamental part of being human. And so I think that's why that subject interests me so much. It does play out very well in the book. I, I want to ask about the title because the title is The Girl Who Could Breathe Underwater. Um, what? Obviously, it's not a very straightforward title. It's a very symbolic title. Um, but it's mysterious. You don't, you don't know what it means. So I I guess even before you, you open the page, there's already a mystery of what does this title mean? At Mm -hmm. what what point in the process did you begin to workshop the title and, and decide, okay, this is what sort of encapsules this story? Sure. Um, I think what a lot of readers may not know is that in general, writers don't always come up with the best titles for their books. I work for a publisher. I've worked for them for 20 years. And one of my jobs uh, in in my capacity there is working on titling committees. And so I've titled a lot of other people's books. Um, And in fact, my first three books went in with different titles and we went back and forth. And ultimately the titles that they have are ones that I came up with, but this one went in under this title. And I really didn't think they would take it because it's so long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I knew that my editor who had read the book in full would fight for it. I just knew that she knew it was the right title for this book. Um, and I don't really remember when I 
decided that would be the title of it. Uh, so I can't quite answer the question of like, when did it actually come to be? Um, I, there's, a, there's a reference to that particular phrase in, in the story. And so I would imagine once I wrote that part of the story, I thought, oh, that'd be a good title. <laughs> but I like the idea of, well, for, first of all, it's set in Michigan and the state is 40% water. So anybody who grows up in Michigan is well-versed in water. We can all swim. We, everybody has a friend who has a boat. You know, I grew up in a, in a very sort of boatish town, lots of wharfs and marinas and, and working uh, rivers and there's freighters and uh, sailboats. And, and so to me, water is a really important part of my life. Like I could never live in the Southwest where there's no water <laughs> ever. I can't even imagine that. Um, it's just, it's such a huge part of, of growing up in this area of the country that um, I knew that there's just a lot you can do with it in, in terms of symbolism, especially if you think of, you know, in the past, people looked at deep water, like oceans and the Mediterranean Sea and things like that as not having bottoms because they couldn't, they couldn't get there. They couldn't fathom it. And in fact, fathom, of course, is a measure of how deep water is. And um, the idea that uh, in, in scripture, when you're told that your, your sins, it's like your sins are thrown into the depths of the sea. The idea was that you would never see them again. And so water can hide a lot of things. In my state, it hides shipwrecks and um, things like that. But it also reveals a lot of things because technically it's clear. And so there is an element of the way it hides things and the way it reveals things um, that was interesting to me in terms of this, the, the actual content of the story. Mm -hmm. Now, my next question was about the setting. And you've already kind of told me a little bit about, about that. Um, but Hidden Lake in particular, it, it's a very well fleshed out area. And it seems to me, if I had to guess, that it's based on a real location. Yes, it is. Um, in my mind, it looks like uh, and sort of is a lake called Thumb Lake, which is in the northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. And um, it's it, in real life, there are two camps like kids camps on it. And then the rest of its private homes, and there's a small public beach. Um, but in the story, there are no camps. It's just private homes, which is a very common thing for, for lakes, uh, inland lakes in Michigan to have a lot of homes around them. Um, but one of the things that I, I like so much about that lake is that it, it is a very clear lake. There are no rivers or creeks running in or out of it. It's only filled with rainwater and snowmelt. So it's extremely clear and it's very deep because it's a kettle lake, which is something that glaciers form. They just kind of scoop out the rock and the dirt and they have these little bowls and they're called kettle lakes. And so I based it on that actual place. Um, and I guess I hadn't thought of the connection here, but somebody else pointed out to me that my website has tons and tons of photos and a lot of them are of that lake. So if people oh, read the book and they mm -hmm. kind of want to see, um, they just look for anything that's labeled Thumb Lake or Lake Louise, because we actually call it Lake Louise, even though it's not that it's not the real name of it. That's what well, the camps are called. It, the setting is it's more than just tangential to the story. Yeah, it's not yeah, just it's, it's not just the place the story is. Uh, it, it's almost a character in its own right uh, because you kind of see it's it is the context in which the characters develop. Yeah, and the place that they come back to. Mm -hmm. 
there's there's sort of almost uh, this small community culture that is built around uh, this this location. So you know when 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 uh, Kendra returns, she's not just she's not just going to her grandpa's cabin. Um, she's not just returning to things in the future, you know, or in the present. She's returning to all these things in the past. Yeah. Um, what you know when, when you when you're thinking about that from from a fiction standpoint, I think that really helps you determine the shift in the book because the book contains this present storyline, but it also goes into this past storyline as well, and then these flashbacks of of uh, what happened, and we don't have to shift locations, right? Mentally. Yeah. And, and actually you don't even have to in this book you don't even have to you don't even necessarily notice the shift because mm-hmm, she's talking mm-hmm. to this person from her past she goes in and out from past to right, present right. pretty easily and so there's it's not like it's one chapter in the present and one chapter in the past um so it is really yeah it is quite cohesive in that way mm-hmm. and it, i think that really helps develop the relational storyline as well because mm-hmm. you see those characters in how like, you're not seeing their development in the interim, uh, but you're seeing who they were in the past. You're seeing what they are in the present. And yeah. the story is slowly about how they came to that place. Yeah. Yeah. They're like little snapshots, mm-hmm. little memories. And then we have a person who just sort of intrudes into the storyline and that's Andreas. Yes. Um, so Kendra and I, and initially as I'm reading the story, I, I was um, admittedly, and it, this takes a brilliant turn in the book. I won't say any more than that. Uh, I, at first, when I'm reading this, I was like, okay, this sort of B plot, it's, it's a little more lighthearted. So it balances. That's mm-hmm. good. Uh, but he, but it is sort of an intrusion to the story. And then you wrap it up very nicely um and sort of parallel with some things at the end and i I won't say any more about that um so how did how did his storyline develop as you wrote the book um gosh i don't remember making a choice about having him be in the book it was just one of those (laughs) things that you know you you write and then later on you don't really remember making that decision yeah he was intrusive Um, to the story then But I think I think in a way it's important when you have a character who, I mean, to be honest, she's extremely Mm self-focused. She's completely focused on her own work and her own needs. And to have somebody come in from the outside who doesn't share the same past as she has with these other characters, who doesn't know the story, um, who she's going to need to explain some things to is actually a way for the story to be explained to the reader. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if she doesn't say certain things to her friend Cammy, who's not in most of the of the present day story, um, then how are we as the reader ever going to know what's happening? Um, so it's it's nice that he brings in a little comic relief. He brings in a little bit of a a nicer, lighter feel, and that there's um, some positive uh, relationships where she's focusing on a negative relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a way that as the reader, like you're the outsider, you're Andreas coming into the story. And, you know, you can connect with him saying like, okay, he doesn't know what's going on either. So <laughs> he's going to help me. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did you choose that this is going to be a, you know, a, a German translator who's coming here to, to do a German translation of her first book? 
Why, why, why German? I don't have the great, oh, why German specifically? Mm. Um, well, I think possibly because my first book was translated into German and Dutch. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know much about the Dutch. I know a lot more about Germans and, you know, some of my ancestry is German. Mm. And, um, and I, I just really am interested in, in German history and the German language. And I, for a little while, I was sort of trying to learn it. And then you realize just how hard German is. <laughs> and so um, I guess I don't know exactly why I chose German, but um, it actually became something that came up again and again in, in a way that like if I'd chosen some other ethnicity, mm-hmm it would have been different. Yeah, it would have changed the story. Um, especially, yeah, especially considering like the relationship with this other writer on the on the lake and the kind mm-hmm. of books that he writes and um and this other character who was a who was a veteran of World War II and um so it it became a a really integral part of the story and and I I like that you you see that it's not just like a well she had to have a subplot um that it actually does matter. And I think that what's nice about outside characters coming in is that they can challenge your assumptions, um, challenge the assumptions of your protagonist and make them ask questions that they wouldn't have otherwise asked. And I think it makes for a richer story and more growth for characters. Now, I, I want to I want to pivot and, and sort of talk about the uncomfortable part of the book sure. that, that has to be talked about. And I wanted to sort of save it more towards the end. So just just a content warning for anyone who's listening, um, just a content warning for sexual abuse, because Kendra in the is in this book, she's sexually assaulted as a child uh, by her best friend's older brother. And that is thematically very much at the core of the book. And as I'm reading that scene and I, I, I just had the overwhelming impression, and it's one that you confirm in the books afterward, that that wasn't just fiction for you. Can you talk about that and how that stuck with you? Sure. Um, the actual scene um, that I think you're talking about, that actually, I mean, that particular thing didn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do base a lot of this character's um, experience in her interactions with this, this friend's brother uh, on my own interactions with a friend's brother as a child. Um, so the kind of discomfort and not knowing what's going on and feeling um, pushed into things and helpless and nobody sees and nobody's there to help you and you don't feel like you can tell anyone that all comes from real life and I think anybody who's experienced um, that kind of uh, abuse or harassment or intimidation can connect with that mm-hmm. and um, in fact I've already talked to re- a number of readers, including people who are very close to me that I didn't know went through an experience like that as a child who said, oh, that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I pull on a lot of those types of uh, feelings in in writing that character, just as, you know, I, I wrote a book that involves sisters and I pulled on a lifetime of being a sister. But the actual scene of what happens in the book is not something that actually happened to me. It's, I think, just thematically there are so many people who have been through an experience like that um, who have been harassed or abused uh, whether as a one-time thing or chronically uh, through mm-hmm. their life whether as a child yeah. teenager or adult that 
even if it hasn't happened to you, then I think you probably know people of whom it has. Yeah. And, and you, you may not know that it has, hmm. but you definitely know people it, it's happened to a hundred percent. And I, I just want to commend you because in the story, it, you know, it, it's, 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 it's well done in the sense that it's not sensationalized. It's not exploitative. It's just, it's very matter of fact and understated. So mm. you sort of, you sort of come away with it with just sort of the, the sense of gravitas, I guess, mm-hmm. from it, that you're not trying to be sensational um, about it, but just simply to say, this is, this is what happened. And then now she has to struggle with it and figure out what that what that means for her yeah and And I think that I think that one of the reasons that I wrote it that way was that that's how people deal with those things Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how people have dealt with those things for generations and generations it's only very recently that anyone has felt comfortable talking about these things and actually calling to account people who are abusive Um, so to me that, that sort of quietness about a very violent act, um, is how people experience it. And when you look around at the people who eventually step forward and say, oh, this happened to me, me too. Um, a lot of them are really high achieving go-getters. They're not going to, you know, sit on this and think about this all the time. They're going to get on with their lives because they have to. Um, and I don't know if it, if that experience breeds that type of person, but, um, you know, I'm from East Lansing and we had the whole Larry Nasser thing, all of those young women who were, uh, gymnasts at MSU and the U S Olympic team and all of the things that they had gone through, those are all really high achieving driven people. And they did it despite all of the stuff that was happening to them that nobody knew about. And I think that's really impressive. And I think that's something that I want people to come away with the idea that what happens to you, you cannot control. Um, What you can control is where you go from there and you can live um, being angry and bitter and uh, with a victim mentality your whole life. Um, Or you can find ways to move on and whether or not somebody is able to forgive is not my business. to me, it's in whether or not anybody decides they're going to seek actual justice is not my business either. I just, I really want people to think of those things as, as uh, not, not opportunities, but as something that they don't have to be defined by. Mm-hmm. And I think, in fact, that, that probably a number of people in my own life would be very surprised when they read this book to find that that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. For Kendra, she uses this experience and she sort of, it's uh, fiction becomes a way of her to control the narrative. Yeah. And so she ends up writing this book that, that, that takes this, this character from her life um, who has abused her and, and fictionalizes him into the antagonist of this novel that, that she writes. Mm-hmm. And this is this becomes a very therapeutic way for, for her to deal with what has happened. Uh, now she still has to go back and deal with it in reality as she now you know tries to think about well did I, did I do this story justice? Right. How much of it was fiction? 
um, you know, how much of it was my fantasy of what I wished happened? How much of it was reality? Yeah. How should I, you know, how should I feel about this in reality? Uh, but, but overall this, this does become for her and sort of the way that you present story and the way that it tells truth as being sort of a cathartic way of expressing one's experience, uh, more in general, not just not just speaking about this, but more in general, when you write, do you feel like you're writing somewhat for the same reasons? Um, I don't know if I go into any particular story with that in mind, but I do mm. think that that's often the result. Mm. Um, because when you're taking a character through something, you know, clearly if you're if you're going to read a book, you want to see something happen. So somebody has to start in one place and end up in another place. And in the kind of fiction I write, it's usually an emotional or um, life change that um, is not, it's not a an actual journey usually mm-hmm. where you think of, you know, sort of a hero's journey. They start in this place, they end in this place. They start in Middle Earth, they end, you know, at the, uh, at Sauron's tower or whatever, um, or Hobbiton to Sauron's tower and back. Uh, it's, but it's an internal journey. And I think that the way that I write, it necessitates that I'm going to go on some sort of internal journey. And I think in large part, that's because I don't outline books. I have an idea of where I'm going and um, I'm writing it and discovering it as I'm writing it, discovering what the story will really truly be. Um, So that's why I think a lot of those things that are, they are decisions that the writer makes. I'm going to have the character choose this thing instead of this thing, but they're hard to, it's hard to remember making that decision because Mm -hmm. you're going through the experience of writing the book. And I think that's also why, um, why that tends to happen with readers, where if, if you're reading a book where you are figuring things out as you go along and you kind of, maybe the whole time you don't even realize how you're, how this character is changing, it's subtle that those are usually, I think, books that are written in that way, where the author is figuring this out at the same time too. And that makes it so that you don't have to worry as much about like, well, am I giving too much away here? Or, um, you know, should I, should I, make this stronger or, or, or more obvious or something like that. Um, and that's always something that's very frustrating to me as a reader, if I'm reading a book and there's something that just sticks out as a sore thumb, like, oh, this will be important later. Like, I'd rather not realize it's important until later. And then I look back and it's like, oh my gosh, that was from the first chapter. Um, I love that kind of experience. And that's the kind of experience that I want to give readers. And I think that because of the way I write, that's how I change as a person as well. So I may not go into it thinking like, I'm going to write this and then I have, I can stop thinking about it. Um, Because especially if you're, if you're writing about a difficult topic and one that's kind of haunted you your whole life, I mean, it's, it's more than 30 some years since this thing happened to me. Um, I've dealt with it. I dealt with it before I read, wrote, wrote this book. Um, But you're always kind of redealing with it. So it's not like everything's gone and done and everything's fine. I talked to a woman um, the other day who had read the book and said, I still think about something that happened to me 63 years ago. I can't mm-hmm. not think of it um, because those things never leave you. And in fact, I think, I think that's the interesting thing about that kind of abuse is that a lot of times the person who is doing the abusing it's, it's nothing to them. 
they they don't even think about um especially if they're a serial abuser um they're not thinking about what how this affects anybody down the road they're just you know doing whatever they want to in the moment but it can be such a small thing and it can stay with you your entire life even if it's a single comment from someone that can change the way you look at yourself and it's really hard to to get that out of your brain yeah yeah well just to wrap up uh i know you you've just released a novel and i always hate to end by asking questions like this to authors uh, but we're very greedy people, readers, and uh, and and there are some some authors who I don't have to ask this question because the question is, well, what's next? Uh-huh. And with, with some authors, you know what's next because they always write the same thing, you know, it, it's, <laughs> and and it's the same, you know, the same. And it may not even be the same series, but they they just sort of have the same pattern the same way. Your novels are so eclectic. They're very thematically similar in that they're novels of relationships. Um, yeah. The settings and the characters have been so very different. Um, so I have to know what is in store for us next year. Well, I'm actually very glad you asked because it's very different from this, (laughs) um, as you might expect. Uh, but like so different that my publishing company was like, are you sure? Like why this one next? (laughs) Um, because it is quite different. It was actually a really fun book to write. Uh, whereas this one was, um, it wasn't not fun, but it was, it was definitely, um, emotionally draining, let's say. Mm-hmm, right. This one, uh, was not. So I've been working on, and in fact, just turned in the manuscript for my next book, which I have a title for, but I'm sure won't be the real title. Uh, but it is, uh, based on, um, well, it's not based on it. It's the story of, uh, a young man who's in his early twenties, who's a musician, who's been kicked out of his band and kicked out of the apartment that the band shared because he's just, he's always missing gigs. He's flaking out, whatever. And he has to go live with his uncle in his uncle's trailer. And his uncle thinks he is bad luck for various reasons. His uncle doesn't really care for him. He doesn't like his uncle, um, mostly because he reminds him too much of his dad because his uncle and father are twins and he has this you know, absentee dad. So he's, he's, his life is just, he thinks hitting bottom at this point. Like, what, where do I go from here? But his uncle lives across the street from um, a very wealthy family. It seems strange to have a trailer across from a wealthy family, but there's a reason for that. And you can read it in the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's the family where um, the, the father is a guitarist turned producer. One of those people that like, musicians would know and revere, but probably most of the rest of us had never heard of. His wife uh, was a singer songwriter in the sixties, but she hasn't recorded anything since 1970. And then they have this daughter and it's this daughter and this guy who are going to have the story where they are very focused on things that are ending for them. But what they need to do is focus on some things that are beginning and they're going to form a band. And one of the most fun things about writing this story, well, two things. First, it's set in 1990, which was a really fun year to spend a year in when this year and the last year have just been terrible. Not fun years, not fun years. (laughs) Because I don't know if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but I remember 1990, like the, the, the switch over to 1990 Mm -hmm. being an extremely hopeful time. And in fact, the story starts on New Year's Eve, 1989, switching over to 90. 
And, you know, the Berlin Wall's coming down, the Soviet Union is sort of inching toward democracy. Everybody thinks that everything's going to be better from here on out, the economy's getting better. And um, it's just kind of one of those moments where you look back and you think, oh, how naive, because like by the end of 1990 was when we were starting the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there were all sorts of nasty things going on in 1990, but it seemed like it was going to be great. So I got to spend a lot of time there with no cell phones. And um, I grew up in a household where my dad is an audiophile, which means he spends all of his extra time and money on high-end stereos. So growing up, music was very important in our family and in fact was an actual activity. It wasn't background noise. You sat and listened to music. And so I got to, you know, spend time in a world where that's how people were and, you know, we're flipping vinyl and, and it's just a great feeling of, of celebrating how important music is to our lives. And um, the other nice fun thing was while I was writing this book, I also decided it needed songs because of course you're writing a, a story about a band forming. And so I was learning songwriting. So I've, I've written a bunch of songs to go with the story. And so I'm tr- sort of figuring out how best to connect those things and you know make them available to people and get some musicians to actually record them decently and stuff like that. So it's been really fun. Yeah, it sounds like you should just pair it with an album and you'll be good to go. Yeah, that'd be so awesome. <laughs> well, Aaron, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to talk about the book. Again, the book is The Girl Who Could Breathe Underwater. Uh, it is available now, available everywhere. So wherever you buy your books at, uh, go find it and, and get it and then pick up the rest of Aaron's books too while you're there. <laughs>